Okay, so so we're back to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Buddhist Scriptures. So once again, on a cold night, we're still at the slip road, hoping for a lift to who knows where, but um, wherever it might be, hopefully in a warm vehicle. So um, so where is where is this vehicle going to take us? In fact, which vehicle might it be tonight? So just to recap the last couple of uh, weeks... So two weeks ago, um, I, I came up with this roadmap um, to help us, maybe, with our journey. And uh, broadly speaking, I mean, I'm not going to recap the detail now, but broadly speaking, the red bit at the top is what we know as the tripitaka, the three baskets um, of um, canonical Buddhist literature. And then down here we've got a we've got a fourth bit as well, which is the tantras, and haven't really said anything about the tantras yet. Um, but watch this space; they they might they might just rear their heads by the end of uh, what I've got to say. And then last week, um, so Mahabodhi um, introduced us to a sutta from the the Sutra Pitaka up here, and. In my understanding, Mahabodhi, it was, it was from here, actually, from the, the Diga Nikaya, which is the, um, the collection of long discourses, to give you a translation. <coughs> and I, I can't remember what the sutta was called. Uh, the Fruits of the Homeless Life. The Fruits of the Homeless Life. Okay, thank you. So, so in that, it was, it was a lengthy sutta, as befits the, the long collection, I suppose. And we heard about a meeting of um, two historical figures. So one was the Buddha, uh, and the other was King Ajatasattu. And uh, the king uh, arranged a meeting with the Buddha, um, sort of happened upon him without warning, one moonlit night, and uh, asked for a teaching. And the Buddha proceeded to give King Ajatasattu a, a, a lengthy and comprehensive teaching uh, on the Dharma and in fact uh, that concluded that whole episode concluded with the king being mightily impressed and reciting if my memory serves me right what what we've come to know as the refuge formula so he was he responded to his being blown away if you like by the Buddha's teaching by stating that he was going for refuge to the Buddha, to his teaching, that's to say the Dharma, and to the community, uh, well, he wanted to become a member of the lay community. So that's refuge to the Sangha. <coughs> so that was last week. So we were in the, the Hinayana portion of the Sutra Pitaka last week. So this week... This week, I'm going to take you somewhere quite different, quite a, quite a different stop on our journey. So, just to begin with, with a little reading. Um, okay. In fact, two short readings um, from this book, Visions of Mahayana Buddhism, so that might give you a clue. So here's the first one. No wisdom can we get hold of, no highest perfection. 
No bodhisattva, no thought of enlightenment either. When told of this, if not bewildered and in no way anxious, a bodhisattva courses in the Buddha's wisdom. In form, in feeling, will, perception and awareness, nowhere in them they find a place to rest on. Without a home they wander. Dharmas never hold them, nor do they grasp at them. So this has quite a different different sound immediately from, from what we heard last week. And then a second shorter reading from the same tradition. As stars, a fault of vision, as a lamp, a mock show, dew drops or a bubble, a dream, a lightning flash or cloud, so should we view what is conditioned. So, does anybody happen to know where in the road map we've landed from those two readings? Any, anybody have some familiarity with any of that? We are indeed in the Mahayana. Very good, Kevin. Very good. So we are, we are here. We are in what are known as the perfection of wisdom suttas of the, the Mahayana canon. So, the Perfection of Wisdom um, is a collection of literature. Um, it's a large collection of literature. In fact, Sangha Akshita, in his surveys, survey of Buddhism, um, calls it a literature of truly staggering dimensions. So, let's just, let's just have a bit more detail on the picture. So this, um, in a sense, tries to locate these Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, in the plural, in the context of Mahayana Sutras in, in general. So this, this sort of pie chart down here, um, such as it is, is just trying to give an idea of, of the sort of variety of the Mahayana Sutras. And, I mean, they also feature in the, the big roadmap as well. So there's, there's a wide kind of variety of Mahayana Sutras. And this segment, this, this fairly um, sizable segment, is called in Sanskrit the Pranya Paramita, and the English translation of that is something like the perfection of wisdom. Um, and then this, this pyramid uh, up above really tries to sort of expand on that. So what we can generically call the perfection of wisdom, the Pragna Paramita Sutras, actually themselves have a lot of variety. And I'll explain in a moment why I've used a sort of pyramid shape to illustrate that. Before I do, um, probably important to say, well, what is wisdom in this context? Um, well, let's, let's come back to that. Um, the, the word wisdom is significant. When we talk about the perfection of wisdom, uh, we need to have a fairly clear understanding of what we mean by that word. So, just concentrating for a moment on the, on the pyramid shape up there. 
Um, so what we have there is um, the whole, well, a sort of representation of the whole range of this whole family, or Bante calls it a dynasty, in fact, of perfection of wisdom sutras. Um, there are a lot more than you can see there. So we, we believe, or historians believe, that about 27 versions of the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras have come down to the present day um, from various source languages. <coughs> Originally, it's likely that there are more than 27. So Sangharakshita Bandhi is the number 34 around, in fact. And what the pyramid seeks out to, to represent is that they, they have quite an astonishing variety of, of size, in fact. So down at the bottom here, um, the perfection of wisdom is... There is a version of the perfection of wisdom that, that we refer to as the perfection of wisdom in 100,000 lines, which sounds pretty bulky, and it is. Um, so a, a line, as well, we have to understand this, is not really a, a line, like a line on a page of A4. It's more like, more like something like a stanza, really. So this is a very large body of literature indeed. But then we've got, um, above that, the perfection of wisdom in 8,000 lines. That's, that's in red, you'll notice. Uh, and the reason for that is, this is, this is thought to be the original... Um, if you like, the ancestor of all the other perfection of wisdom writings. So, in fact, what's believed to have happened is that this was, this was composed, this was um, committed to writing from the oral tradition. Do you remember two weeks we talked about the roughly 300 years of the oral tradition? And that happened, the perfection of wisdom in 8,000 lines became uh, a written document in a, a long period of time between about a thousand, uh, sorry, 100 BC and 100 AD, as we would say in, in Western time. And then for the next 200 years, that, let's call it 8,000-line document, um, was elaborated on, um, was developed, was added to, um, and that's how we ended up with the 100,000-line version. And then, almost as a sort of reaction to that, that explosion of, you know, a volume, um, the next 200 years, so that's something like 300 to 500 AD, actually resulted in a contraction um, back down to smaller forms. So working from the, the larger versions to the, the smaller versions as we go up, we've got something called the, the Ratnaguna Samchaya Gata. That doesn't in any way describe an order member who's now based in Manchester. Okay, So Ratnaguna Samchaya Gata translates something like um, verses describing the store, of, uh, the store of treasures or something like that. Um, Treasures, of course, relating to the perfection of wisdom. And then getting smaller again, we've got something that a lot of us are quite familiar with, actually, the Heart Sutra. Or to give it its full name, the, the Heart of Transcendental Wisdom, or the Heart of the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra. Um, so, so if you know the Heart Sutra, you'll know that it's actually quite condensed. You can indeed get it on a, on a side of A4. <coughs> and 
That's very well known and probably just as well known is the Diamond Sutra, which is actually slightly smaller. Um, the second of those readings that I gave you, um, which were making comparisons to conditioned existence, that came from the Diamond Sutra. The first reading, incidentally, came from the Perfection of Wisdom in 8,000 Lines. It's, it's towards the very beginning of that, that very important sutra. And then you might think, well, what, what's he got going on at the top of the pyramid with the letter A? That's, what does that stand for? So, so what that stands for, and, and this is where things get, frankly, quite surreal, is um, the perfection of wisdom in one letter. So you don't get much more concise than that, do you? So eventually, um, a, well, a certain school of thought arose that said, we, we can represent the perfection of wisdom as one letter. And it happened to be the letter A. Um, now, this, this is not pure surrealism, actually. There is, there is some meaning to that. The letter A... Um, corresponds, in this case, to the first letter of the Sanskrit alphabet. And if you know a little of your Sanskrit, you'll know that the prefix A means... Anybody know what the prefix A means? Without. Without or not. So wisdom, transcendental wisdom, can be summarized as not. Okay, does that sound mysterious? It's not quite as strange as it sounds as, well, as maybe I'll elaborate on. Um, so there's something quite strange going on there anyway, isn't there, apparently. So, so that's the, this, this is just a representation and just a sort of quite, um, quite a light representation of this, this whole family that we call the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. Okay. So the, the excerpts that I read to you from the Perfection of Wisdom, from the Pragna Paramita, um, clearly contrast quite markedly in style with what we heard from Mahabodhi last week from the, the Hinayana, if you want to call it that, or Nikaya Buddhism, to give it its more polite term. Um, so where last week's sutta <coughs> was... I mean, it was, it was a teaching on what we might say fairly straightforward matters, fairly sort of worldly matters given by the Buddha to a king, king Ajatasattu. Um, the perfection of wisdom is quite, quite different. Um, so it's more of the nature of a sort of uh, a debate or a dialogue between various sorts of enlightened beings. Um, so, in fact, um, well, we typically have three sorts of enlightened beings who feature as the sort of the cast, if you like, of the, uh, the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. One is the Buddha. One is um, somebody who typically represents the Hinayana. So, you know, the, the earlier great phase of Buddhism. Um, an example of that would be Shariputra. And then the third character in the cast of, um, of the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras is very, very importantly the Bodhisattva. So, so is anyone new to the expression Bodhisattva, to the, the term Bodhisattva? Okay, so, so I don't particularly need to explain that. 
But except to say the, the Bodhisattva is, um, belongs entirely to the Mahayana, or very nearly entirely. Neil? Yeah, yeah. So, so Bodhi um, means enlightenment, roughly speaking. Sattva just means being. So it is indeed an enlightened being. Um, but in a sense, just short of being a Buddha. I mean, this, this is, I'm putting this fairly crudely. Uh, but the really important distinction between a Bodhisattva in the Mahayana tradition and an enlightened being in the Hinayana tradition is... The Bodhisattva has done it, has, has pursued and reached enlightenment for the benefit of others. Well, certainly the Mahayanists would say that Prince Siddhartha was a, was a Bodhisattva before he became the Buddha. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is a, a really important distinction, but there are other important distinctions as well between the Hinayana and the Mahayana, as we'll see. Okay, so just concentrating on the Bodhisattva as, you know, as an important class of being, if you like. Um, so according to one tradition in the Mahayana, there are, there are perfections that are possessed and practiced by a Bodhisattva. So it is the business of a Bodhisattva to, um, to practice perfections. And some would say that there are so many perceptions and others would say that there are a different number. But quite a popular number of, of um, perfections in the Mahayana model is six. So we can conveniently say the Bodhisattva pursues six perfections. And one of those, and the highest one of those perfections, is the perfection of wisdom. So paramita means perfection, pragna means wisdom. Um, so here's, here's an interesting quiz. Um, does anybody know what the other five perfections of the Bodhisattva happen to be? Effort. Effort, yep, very good. So that, that's, or, or virya in Sanskrit. Yeah, good, Martin, thanks. Morals. Morals. Yep, morals or, or shila. Sila, the Sila Paramita. Okay. Patience. Patience, thanks, Mahabodhi. The Kashanti Paramita. And there's a couple of others. Generosity. Generosity and meditation. Absolutely right. So, generosity, ethics, patience, energy, meditation, and highest of all those, wisdom. Uh, so, I said that we, we should explain what wisdom in this context means. And this is important stuff as well. So what it isn't is kind of scholarly learning. It's not knowing the facts. It's not having them at his or her fingertips. It's not having a sound grasp of all the models that you've already heard of in the Buddhist tradition. It's not understanding the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. It's not even understanding the six perfections of the Bodhisattva. It's nothing of that. So it's not knowledge, it's wisdom. So what you might ask is the distinction. Well, wisdom, and this is vitally important, wisdom is what is directly perceived 
by the Bodhisattva. And specifically, what is being directly perceived is reality. So the true nature of things as they are, if you like, the unconditioned reality um, of things, of the universe, without the trappings of conditionality. So this is why sometimes we talk about um, Pragna Paramita as being um, the perfection of transcendental wisdom. This is the wisdom that cuts directly to reality through direct experience. So it's a big deal, you know, it's, it's a much bigger deal than, than just being, as we might say, knowledgeable or, or clever or intellectual or any of that. <coughs> okay, <coughs> excuse me. And, and what, we, what, what is often said um, throughout the Mahayana tradition is that what characterizes that direct insight into reality is a certain quality um, and again, does, does anybody know what that, what that quality is? So, you know, reality is characterized by emptiness. By emptiness. Very good, Callum. Um, or as we say in, in Sanskrit, shunyata. Shunyata, emptiness, again, is, is a very important concept in the whole Mahayana tradition. So what do we mean by emptiness? So... We have the makings of a bit of a riddle here, don't we? So we're saying that the perfection of wisdom is not the perfection of knowledge. We're saying that wisdom is direct perception of reality and the characteristic of that direct perception is emptiness. So from a sort of everyday common sense point of view, this this continues to sound quite mysterious. So let's see where this is taking us. So... Just to return to the, the original text um, that, that I've called there the perfection of wisdom in 8,000 lines, I'd just like to read you a little bit more from that. And this is from this book, which I mentioned two weeks ago, The Eternal Legacy, an Introduction to the Canonical Literature of Buddhism. So, here we are. So this, is, this passage is uh, spoken by a bodhisattva. The bodhisattva in question is Subhuti. Um, again, a name that crops up in, in our Triratna tradition. But Subhuti is, is seeking to, in a sense, to speak on behalf of the Buddha here. And, uh, and he's addressing a proponent of the Hinayana. Um, well, actually, he's addressing the Buddha, but he's got this proponent of the Hinayana in mind. So he says, I do not, O Lord, see that Dharma, Bodhisattva, nor a Dharma called perfect wisdom, since I neither find nor apprehend nor see a Dharma, Bodhisattva, nor a perfect vision, uh, sorry, a perfect wisdom. What Bodhisattva shall I instruct and admonish in what perfect wisdom? And yet, O Lord, if when this is pointed out, a bodhisattva's heart does not become cowed nor stolid, does not despair or despond, if he does not turn away or become dejected, does not tremble, is not frightened or terrified, it is just this bodhisattva, this great being, who should be instructed in perfect wisdom. It is precisely this that should be recognized as the perfect wisdom of that bodhisattva. 
as his instruction in perfect wisdom. When he thus stands firm, that is his instruction and admonition. Moreover, when a bodhisattva courses in perfect wisdom and develops it, he should so train himself that he does not pride himself on that thought of enlightenment with which he has begun his career. That thought is no thought, since in its essential nature thought is transparently luminous. So stranger and stranger in a sense. So so Subhuti appears to be saying that the very concept of perfection of wisdom is not really there at all. The concept of the, of the bodhisattva is not there at all. And again, these are, these are characteristics in a way of the Mahayana in general, but the perfection of wisdom sutras in particular. So there's certainly um, quite a strong uh, flavor of what we might call paradox in the definition of, of the unconditioned. So just to, just to unpack what was going on there, as, as I said before, um, the main characters were Sabuti, whom we heard speak there. Um, the, the Buddha is in the sutra himself. And then there's Shariputra. And remember that Sabuti is a bodhisattva. He's a bodhisattva in the Mahayana tradition. And Shariputra is an enlightened being, or sometimes we would, we would say an arahant, in the, the earlier Hinayana tradition. And interestingly enough, um, Shariputra is also credited with being the founder of this bit, this bit of the Hinayana tradition, the, Ab- the Abhidharma, or the philosophical collection. So the Abhidharma, if you know, if you know anything about the Abhidharma, the Abhidharma is... It's characterized by being an extremely rigorous, intellectual, analytical um, treatment of the nature of reality. Um, we could say to a, a quite sort of obsessive degree, an obsessively sort of um, deconstructivist, maybe is the word, analytical, maybe is a better word, degree. And what's happening here, in a sense, is a sort of polemic. So Sabuti, as a representative of of this new school of thought, this sort of revisionary school of thought, is is really refuting that very very sort of fossilized view of reality that the Mahayanists would say the earlier Buddhists had had sunk to. Um, So what he's doing in, in that sort of paradoxical language is is really refuting the whole, the whole sort of construct of concepts. He's saying, well, however you, whatever concepts you try to apply to reality, they don't work. They are not enough. Um, they are not the same. They are quite emphatically not the same as direct experience. If you think you can conceptualize direct experience, then you haven't seen reality. And this is a very powerfully... Mahayanist sort of uh, argument, and particularly um, it's a powerful argument of the perfection of wisdom sutras. So we could say that the <coughs> the perfection of wisdom marks a sort of transition. The perfection of wisdom sutras were 
early Mahayana sutras. And we could say in a sense, and Sangharachita says in a sense, that they mark a transition between the Hinayana. The Hinayana had become formal and analytical and conceptual. And on the other, ha- the other hand, the Mahayana, where time and time again the emptiness of concepts is emphasized. So to come back to what we said about shunyata, you know, this emphasis on shunyata, well, what is empty? And what we can conveniently say is concepts are empty. Concepts will not help us ultimately in our, in our route to enlightenment. Excuse me. Or to put it the other way around, <clears throat> to put it more positively, the only way that we can, the only way that we can perceive reality, that we can see things as they truly are, is by direct experience and never by conceptualizing. And in fact, misunderstanding that point, or so the Mahayanists would say, is a direct obstacle to enlightenment. So this is this is really crucial in a sense. Um, this was the whole gripe, we might say, to use crude language, that the proponents of the Mahayana had with the Hinayanists. The concepts that the Hinayanists were so fond of and which crop up um, throughout the Tripitaka, but particularly in the Abhidharma, or most extremely in the Abhidharma, far from being helpful, are actually um, an obstacle to enlightenment. That would be the Mahayana uh, position. So, Sangharakshita um, puts this in quite interesting language. This this whole this whole problem in his survey of Buddhism. So, I'm just going to read briefly from that, from the chapter which looks at the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. So, Sangharakshita says. So what he's, what he's leading up to saying here, the context of what he's saying rather, is that from the Mahayana point of view, this is, this is the central problem of the spiritual life. So it's quite a big statement, or perhaps the central problem of the spiritual life. What is this problem, he says? That the means to enlightenment, being regarded as an end in itself, becomes an object of attachment, so that from a help it is transformed into a hindrance, all the more dangerous for being in its subtler forms so very difficult to detect. So if we're, to paraphrase Sangharakshita, possibly we're making some progress on the spiritual path, um, but we get bogged down in a relatively subtle hindrance, and that hindrance is the, the attachment to the concept of enlightenment itself. And then he goes on to quote from, um, from a scholar, Dr. Edward Conzer, who was, by the way, um, Dr. Conzer was, was absolutely instrumental in the translation of a, a vast uh, body of Perfection of Wisdom sutras into English. He was an Anglo-German scholar. Um, and he was the sort of scholar par excellence uh, in the area of translation of those works into English. And what Dr. Conzer said was this. (coughs) I quite like this. But he said, 
He said, the very means and objects of emancipation are apt to turn into new objects and channels of craving. Attainments may harden into personal possessions. Spiritual victories and achievements may increase one's self-conceit. Merit is hoarded as a treasure in heaven, which no one can take away. Enlightenment and the absolute are misconstrued as things out there to be gained. In other words, the old vicious trends continue to operate in the new spiritual medium. The Pragnaparamita is designed as the antidote to the more subtle forms of self-seeking, which replace the coarser forms after the spiritual life has grown to some strength and maturity. So that's interestingly put, isn't it, that the, the perfection of wisdom, the Pragnaparamita, is designed as, as, as an antidote, deliberately as an antidote to that sort of subtle hindrance. So just to conclude, um, we can say that the, the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva of the Mahayana, works in this context. So the Bodhisattva has uh, perfect wisdom, if you like, along with the other, the other five perfections. So he or she knows that um, concepts are not the answer, concepts are not the route to enlightenment, and yet the Bodhisattva has to teach less enlightened beings, has to help less enlightened beings along the way to enlightenment. So this is where we get into another really interesting Mahayana doctrine, which is the doctrine of skillful means. So in other words, um, Bodhisattvas will use a sort of provisional teaching for the benefit of those hearers that haven't had the same experience as they, the Bodhisattvas, have had. And this is what we mean by skillful means. Um, and those skillful means have to, have to act provisionally until such time as the hearers have had direct experience. In, or, in other words, have, have gained the perfection of wisdom themselves. So just the final little excerpt um, from... Actually, it's not quite the final ex- excerpt. Bear with me. So this is from Nagapriya's whoops, Visions of Mahayana Buddhism. So to sum up what I just said on the role of the Bodhisattva, according to the perfect wisdom in 8,000 Lines Sutra, in just the same way that the Buddha and his immediate disciples wandered possessionless, homeless, not attached to anything, so Bodhisattvas wander through the world without attachment to any fixed views, completely free of dogmatism, using ideas merely as skillful means to help mature others. They use concepts to free others, but never become trapped in them. So that's, that's quite a powerful notion, isn't it? That they use concepts to free others, but never become trapped in them. Um, and this is, this is what we mean when we talk about skillful means of the Bodhisattva. So just, just to, um, to take things to almost to a conclusion, um, so we've talked about the, the evolution of the, the Pragnaparamita works. And um, 
the Pragnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom uh, sutras, took on such an, an importance with the Mahayana or within the Mahayana um, that eventually, um, and this is quite a strange notion in itself, they, they eventually crystallized out into a sort of being, into a being who was worthy of worship. Um, and in fact, we, we normally call that being a goddess. Um, so on the shrine, um, just over by that, that beautiful pair of lilies, is a little, a little figure, a little rupa, of, of the figure, of the female figure that we call Pragna Paramita. And Pragna Paramita, as a, a goddess, for want of a better word, was the product of, of the sort of infiltration of the perfection of wisdom tradition by the tantras, so, uh, which are down here, aren't they, on the, uh, on the main road map. So when the tantric tradition um, began to hold sway, um, the meeting of the tantras and the perfection of wisdom sutras, in a sense, gave birth to this, this goddess, this, this figure who... Um, in her own right, is highly revered in certain parts of the Mahayana world. Um, and if you want to know more about the goddess Pragnaparamita, um, I really recommend this book by Vasantra, which is a guide to the deities of the Tantra. Um, she's in there alongside figures like Padmasambhava and Vajrasattva and others. Okay, um, and maybe, maybe when we do our puja a little later on, maybe, maybe we can, uh, you know, if we feel so inclined, we can even make offerings to Pragnaparamita as well as, um, as well as the, the main Buddha Rupa. So I'll just finish with final reading, uh, which is which is from something which might be quite familiar to you, but it's possibly in slightly unfamiliar language. So it's a translation which you might be a little less familiar with than Sangharakshita. So this again is a translation by Dr. Edward Konza, and it's from here. It's from the Heart Sutra. (coughs) Homage to the perfection of wisdom the lovely, the holy. Avalokita, the holy lord and bodhisattva, was moving in the deep course of the wisdom which has gone beyond. He looked down from on high, he beheld but five heaps, and he saw that in their own being they were empty. Here, O Shariputra, form is emptiness, and the very emptiness is form. Emptiness does not differ from form, nor does form differ from emptiness. Whatever is form, that is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness, that is form. The same is true of feeling, perception, impulses and consciousness. Here, O Shariputra, all dharmas are marked with emptiness. They are neither produced nor stopped neither defiled nor immaculate, neither deficient nor complete. Therefore, O Shariputra, where there is emptiness, there is neither form nor feeling 
nor perception, nor impulse, nor consciousness. No eye or ear or nose or tongue or body or mind. No form, nor sound, nor smell, nor taste, nor touchable, nor object of mind. No sight organ element, no hearing organ element, and so forth until we come to no mind consciousness element. There is no ignorance, nor extinction of ignorance, and so forth, until we come to there is no decay and death, no extinction of decay and death. There is no suffering, nor origination, nor stopping, nor path. There is no cognition, no attainment, and no non-attainment. Therefore, O Shariputra, owing to a Bodhisattva's indifference to any kind of personal attainment, and through his having relied upon the perfection of wisdom, he dwells without thought coverings. In the absence of thought coverings, he has not been made to tremble. He has overcome what can be upset in the end sustained by nirvana. All those who appear as Buddhas in the three periods of time fully awake to the utmost right and perfect enlightenment because they have relied upon the perfection of wisdom. Therefore, one should know the Pragnaparamita as the great spell, the spell of great knowledge, the utmost spell, the unequaled spell, a layer of all suffering. In truth, for what could go wrong? By the Pragnaparamita has this spell been delivered. It runs like this. Gone, gone, gone beyond, gone altogether beyond. Oh, what an awakening. All hail.